good day, and welcome to episode 40 of the Aaron Wayne Podcast. Hang tight for an intro that might take a minute or so. I recorded this podcast with no real plan of what I was going to talk about, and I sort of went down a dark hole. And I'm telling you that up front because if you're not into that, like, come back for another. But I have some things on my mind. And on top of that, I feel as if people in communicating with the world, they aren't necessarily forthright with the things that they're thinking, because oftentimes we're wrong about the things that we're thinking. And so I'm putting this one out here as an exemplar that I probably don't know everything I'm talking about, and that's okay to think out loud, so long as you don't have really strong conviction about things you don't know. So yeah, it gets a little dark. It might bum you out a little bit. I think it needs to be, some of these topics need to be talked about. I need to explore them more. And I welcome you to reach out to me with resources, thoughts, opinions, ideas, so I can be a little bit more educated about these topics. So long intro, short podcast. Let's go. just got a new microphone and like I can't even get close to it because this thing is like I can hear it in my headphones this thing is wicked powerful my goodness do you guys like my new sunglasses I do crazy day today man feeling a little sleepy today and then uh turned on the on the old YouTube this afternoon checked out a couple things and noticed that uh there was uh Attack in Afghanistan. It's a hell of a way to start a podcast. Here is an uninformed opinion about Afghanistan. I'm so uninformed, I said Afghanistan. I am tired today, man. It's Thursday. I'm recording this podcast. Probably going to send this one out on Monday. Trying to get ahead on these things, man. But uh, I'm totally uninformed in so many ways about world events. But I do know that Afghanistan probably shouldn't have gone the way that it went. Probably shouldn't have went down like that. I remember posting something the other day on my Instagram of Taliban leaders in the presidential office. Probably shouldn't have gone down like that. But, and then there was just an attack and a bunch of Marines died. So, what a bummer. What a bummer podcast, but I, I don't know, man. I, I think the podcast is less about necessarily being entertaining, and my primary objective is to just have some exploration of ideas. I think the big idea here, man, is that um, I don't know. You know, I've noticed that people are more and more comfortable discussing how cognitively incompetent our current president seems to be. They're more comfortable talking about it when he was running against Trump, that was like, just don't bring this up. We got to get this guy out. And I hear that. I hear, I hear that conversation, but, um, I, I don't have faith that this guy is like, he's making this decision to get us out. You know, actually, as it turns out, I don't think he actually made that decision here again. I'm an uninformed individual expressing impediments on the internet, but I think that that was, a Trump policy and a Trump deadline that he had um, 
negotiated with the Taliban to get out around this time this year. And Biden is just sort of seeing it through. And, you know, he's taking a lot of credit for it, saying, you know, I won't hand this off to another president, um, which he isn't. But in the meanwhile, there's people having pretty hellacious experience in Afghanistan right now. I don't know what to say about this. What are you going to do? I can't. What can I do? You know, I had a conversation with a friend and he was talking about how it was actually a previous podcast I did with Ryan. He said, because these ideas, they weigh on me sometimes like these, you know, listening to this stuff and talking about this stuff. And he said, I'm, he said, you know, I'm just trying to act locally. I think that's such an important idea. I think it's so true. Like, what can I do locally? In fact, I think that the community that I live in, um, a few years back, there was, um, a Syrian refugee crisis and, uh, my community hosted, uh, we have a refugee project. In fact, one of the yoga teacher trainings that, um, I teach at the end of the yoga teacher trainings, we do a service-based project where we offer a free yoga class and people give donations to an organization that the trainees choose to support. And one of them was the Blacksburg refugee project. And, uh, I don't, I don't recall how much money they raised, but just bringing awareness to that project. Cause there's a lot of people who in different parts of the country, they don't necessarily want refugees. They don't necessarily want immigrants. I don't know. That's a complicated conversation. I'm sure. But I know that human beings that are not malintended deserve protection and, and to, um, have some refugee status, you know, though, you know, it's a complicated conversation. There's definitely probably people that end up in refugee situations that don't necessarily wish well on the countries that they end up in, but that's probably such a small fraction of the people that our primary mode should probably be to pull people in and help give them whatever opportunities they can be given. Goodness. This is what I'm thinking about today. Oh my goodness. I have my kids reading this story, uh, this short narrative called Consider the Lobster. I don't even know why I brought that up. I guess because I've been teaching it all day today by David Foster Wallace. And it's this, uh, this is a hard segue, by the way, talking about Afghanistan refugees. Now I'm talking about contemporary American authors. Um, David Foster Wallace wrote this piece for Gourmet Magazine called Consider the Lobster, which is about him going to the Maine Lobster Festival festival, and having been t- tasked with writing about it as if it's a attractive tourist event. And instead, he goes into hard science about the, you know, the ed- like about lobsters as well as the history of how they used to get, it used to be considered inhumane to feed prisoners lobsters for more than like two meals a day or something like that. Cause they were so ubiquitous in the Northeast that they just threw them in for prisoners to eat as well as completely eviscerating this main lobster festival. I mean, picture he basically analogizes it to any mid-level state fair AK or slash carnival that you've ever been to with people eating deep fried Twinkies and, you know, walking around or like if you've ever been to a wine festival, people walking around with the, um, 
you know, a necklace with a wine glass hanging out of it with stains on their shirts. I mean, it, it, he completely tears this thing apart. And in fact, in some of the footnotes of the article, he says, this isn't going to get published, but if it were, I would want the audience to know this, 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 and this. I think it's really, really funny, cheeky, quirky. Can I take my mind off of world events? No. Am I feeling a bit down about it? Yeah. Am I sharing that with you as some sort of signal to represent that I'm a compassionate, caring individual? Yeah, I think a little bit. I want you to know that I'm a guy that cares. I want people to know that I'm informed. But I'm not really informed. I have no idea the intricacies of what it means to <laughs> to send people to a, a country where you know it's geographically isolated, mountainous, a friend of mine went to Afghanistan uh, he was in the air force and um, I think he traveled with the army. I guess they just sort of like jump across branches uh, for deployments. Um, and he was in Afghanistan and spent some time in Qatar or Qatar, depending on who you ask. And I don't have anything interesting to say about that. It's not my place to tell his story, but I remember having conversations with him about it. And, you know, we, so many people think of Afghanistan as if it's Iraq, which is, you know, a lot of Iraq is desert and Afghanistan is not like that. It's like the Rocky mountains. It's like, go, go to Utah. That's to my knowledge. Again, I'm highly uninformed on this, but it's much more like that. And thinking that we can just go there. It's like, you know, I was thinking about this. The reason that the Americans won the Revolutionary War is not because we had superior commanders. I mean, George Washington made several mistakes. You know, when they came into the, they came into, um, what's the harbor in New York? Um, oh man, it's been a long day of teaching. It's a major body of water in New York. And the British just like started piling ships in and in and in and in. And they filled up this harbor. What is the harbor? Staten Island? Is that a place in New York? I have no idea. Whatever. Um, and he flanked them in order to attack. The whole thing was just a whole... The, the American Revolution was a botch completely. The reason that we won... America. The reason that we won the American Revolution in a big way was because of geography and... Um, the fact that we weren't near the empire. And then you look at even, I think the American revolution is the best example. And so like you have all these hillbillies in America that are just living in the mountains, living in the country, living in the marshes, living in the Northeast, like wherever it is, they are the bitter cold of the Northeast and the, you know, the humid mountains in the summer of Appalachia. And you look at, the British coming from like this spot, this island, which is relatively consistent uh, ecologically or geog geography based. God, I'm losing my train of thought. This is what it looks like for a man to melt down in public. Um, and then you look at, you know, you, you, you compare that to Afghanistan and it's like, yeah, it's a bunch of people living in the mountains. Of course, like you can't, you can't stop that. They don't have, there's no, there's no central location. And then the Taliban just took it all over, man. They took it over so quick. 
And now we're trying to get all these people out that have been helping us. And there's like tens of thousands of people who for a generation, I'm 33 years old next month. And if I were an Afghani, I would have been 13 years old, the age of my eighth grade students when the American occupation began. And to think about my students, just to analogize this, they go through their education, they finish school, they speak both English and Arabic, and they realize, okay, the Americans don't seem to be going anywhere. The Taliban isn't allowing my sister to go to school, and she has to wear clothes that are different than me. I love my sister. I think that's kind of strange. I don't know why. Like she, I, she should be able to do whatever I can do. And then the, in this fictional kid that I'm drawing up, he goes to work to translate for the American army so that the Americans can have a more effective communication with the local population. Mind you, the American government has killed tens of thousands of civilians with dis, with with no regard with drone strikes over the last 20 years. So that should be like go unsaid, but thinking of the experience of this kid, you know, working, maybe getting paid, maybe not probably. And then that kid does that for a decade, gets to know the soldiers, even maybe knows some of the Taliban to communicate and negotiate travels learns about his own country while learning about geopolitics. And then right at my age, 33, grown person, probably got kids. The U.S. government leaves, and in the span of three weeks, the whole country is thrown directly back into Taliban control, where this kid's sister, probably at this point has daughters who could be 10 years old or 13 year olds themselves won't be able to get an education. They'll have to dress differently. They won't be able to work. I mean, you're hearing about parliamentary. Li- I guess they have a parliament in Afghanistan. I don't know. I don't understand how their government works now. Once we took it over and like, you know, f- foisted our brand of democracy on them. But I mean, I was seeing an interview with the Taliban woman who's like, you know, I, I-, I thought that this was solid. I thought we had support. I thought we were here. So I stuck my neck out and I've been advocating for change in this country through the political process. I don't know what her role was. Say, I don't know. I remember vaguely from the interview. Say it's vaguely like she was a senator or something, right? Or a parliamentary member. I don't know how that works in Afghanistan. But, you know, now she might die. It's crazy. It's absolutely bonkers. This is a bummer of an episode and I think I'm just going to lean into it. If you don't want to listen to it, you probably already stopped listening. And then you have these community members. I saw another interview with a woman who didn't want to be on camera. And the pseudonym they gave her was uh, Fatima. And so Fatima was a community organizer, not through the formal political process of becoming a, a member of their government, but through community activism, which we celebrate in this country. And both the, you know, progressive and conservative community, like, Be an active participant in your community. Celebrate that.
And this woman, Fatima, was advocating for women's rights, which, like, in America, we're talking about a completely different spectrum of what that means. In America, we're talking about women being overlooked for promotions. And we're talking about the gender pay gap, which I had a kid last year who did a really interesting uh, presentation on at the end of the year. And those are issues to be addressed. But when we look at a country like Afghanistan, we're talking about the opportunity to work at all, let alone a promotion. The like very explicit subjugation of women to their husband, like straight up biblical ownership stuff. And we're talking about the fundamental human right of an education. And as an educator, I see all of this stuff in Afghanistan as a backsliding for half of the Afghani population. And I see it as an exemplar for other countries to see that they can get away with this sort of thing too. And like, yeah, there are humanitarian crises all over the world. Why are we paying attention to Afghanistan? I don't know. I don't know. I'm trying not to blow out my knees while I resituate myself. If I ever blow out my knees, I hope it happens on the podcast because it's going to happen at some point. There's humanitarian crises all over the world. There's people that are hungry. There's people that are uh, don't have access. The oceans are rising. Countries are catching on fire in the wildernesses. Politicians have found a way to make themselves and those that lobby with them richer. And why aren't we fixing these things? I don't know. But one thing I do know is when I look at this very topical current event of having left Afghanistan, what I see is a lot of people who sacrificed a lot in order to attempt stability. And I see a lot of people who wanted to be a part of that, that are being left behind. To new, who knows what the hell's going to happen to them? I don't know, man. Don't listen to this podcast. If you don't want to be bummed out, I just want to express my thoughts as they come to me. I don't know. And then I and then and then I'm reading the news again today, and um, this um, congressional. I can't. I don't know if it's even again. This is the, the most half baked opinion you'll ever hear, but I'm talking i'm talking it through if you know more than me i'm happy to learn i'm happy to learn this infrastructure plan that's coming through is trillions of dollars and the infrastructure in this country is rated like d minus or something and i've been all over the country my you know anecdotal experience <laughs> the infrastructure in this country is dog do i mean there this country is there's a lot there's a lot of beautiful places in this country in urban centers i mean there's some beautiful spots but um, those urban centers aren't representative of the majority of the country. The majority of the country is crumbling when it comes to infrastructure. And you can just tell it. You drive through a road and you can just feel it in the car. You can just totally feel it. And then I look at this bill 
a th- like $3.5 trillion. I don't know if you knew this. A trillion dollars is a thousand billion. A thousand billion. It's insane. And you've got three and a half of those. Three and a half thousand billions. And I'm thinking to myself, who's going to make that money? Who's going to make that money? Because on the face of it, it's a conversation around this is going to put Americans back to work. This is going to give opportunities to the working class. This is going to give jobs and paychecks in pockets. And that's true. But I don't know if you've noticed, but the people that work don't make a majority of the money. It's the businesses and the people that run those businesses. And over the last 15 years, I don't have any stats in front of me, but you can look them up yourself. Over the last 15, 20 years, the delta between CEO pay and average worker pay has like gone up by like a factor of 10 or something like that. I don't know. Whatever it is, it's high. Don't trust my numbers. Look them up yourself. But I know the sentiment, which is that earnings are continuing to be differentiated and that that gap is exceeding. So when you look at the $3.5 trillion infrastructure bill, I start to think, do I have faith that there aren't a lot of people that work for companies that will benefit from that, that weren't saying, well, our P and L statement says this is going to cost 150 billion but I think the government's good for 300 billion. So, you know, maybe we throw in a couple of extra labor out. Like who's, who's auditing these P and L's who's looking at this and saying, okay, you, uh, you said this was going to cost $10 million to build this bridge. Um, but it only cost you four. So we're only going to give you four. Show us the receipts. Show me the receipts, man. I'm going to sip of water. just posted on my Facebook the other day, the manifesto from, I guess you'd say manifesto. Manifesto has such a negative connotation. The Unabomber and Karl Marx really messed up that whole manifesto word, but I think manifesto is a good word if we can remove the connotation of it from it. Manifesto from Occupy Wall Street, which was about a decade ago. I remember um, being in DC for a beer festival around my birthday. We lived in Winchester at the time. We went to DC to just go have, have us a time. And I'd been following along on a cursory level, much like now with current events and things that were popping off. And, um, my wife and I had a good old time. And then as the sun was setting, we were like, you know, we got to get back. So we started to walk towards the metro to get to our car where we had parked outside the city. And we went through this Occupy Wall Street debrief event where they had a stage behind it, had a, you know, we the people um, backdrop. And people were talking about how they had interactions with the cops and then um, talking about like what it is that we're up to with this Occupy thing. And if you're too young to remember Occupy Wall Street, just Google a little bit of it and, you know, learn about that. Cause I think it's an important hit part of the two thousands. 
I think my wife might be home. No, my dogs are just being squirrely. And I sort of sat in on this and, and looked at it, uh, these people and kind of observed what they were up to, even though I'd been, inf- you know, again, mildly informed about it prior to. And then I got really into it after having been in the space of these people having these conversations. I mean, there was free food that communities were putting together under tents and there were free books and like education centers. And, um, I just thought all that was really interesting. And you see, that was like, that was a piece that, um, sort of fed into a lot of the, um, protests and, uh, community activism that we see now in the 2020s. Um, you know, a lot of that started in the civil rights era, obviously, because a lot of the protests that we've seen in the last couple of years have been due to, um, civil issues, but specifically racism, sexism, and, you know, just equity all around. But the Occupy thing, I think, cuts into a vein that's much deeper than those identity things. Um, and this is in no way to, to diminish anyone's, you know, orientation, expression, culture, heritage, or ethnicity. That's not or gender. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm saying that there's something much deeper at foot. A foot, at foot, in feet. There's much deeper things in the feet than these things that represent our communities and our individuals, individuality. And what that thing is, is that people over time aggregate power. And that power starts to pool all the resources together. And I think we're at a runaway point. I think we are now in a point where the population is sufficiently distracted and uninformed that the people in power can just take this train all the way to the next stop where they have everything. And I think they have everything. And I don't know what to do about that. What a bummer, dude. What a bummer. I brought the, I yelled at you. I can't, I'm not used to this microphone. I'm sorry. I brought up the, uh, the Occupy thing because if you Google Keith Olbermann reads Occupy letter, it's like everything. Talks about these identity issues that I just talked about and the cultural issues. And then it talks about the fact that you have laws against exposing the horrors of factory farming talks about how corporations consider environmental environmental degradation and species loss as an externality in economics terms. If you don't know that, look at that up. Um, how the consolidation of power is leading to runaway, um, a runaway Gini coefficient, which a Gini coefficient is the relationship between um, income disparity and it's not even income anymore. Now it's so run rampant that it's not even income. It's wealth. It doesn't really matter how much money you make. It's how much wealth you accumulate. And then if you look at the statistics of immigrant communities, black and brown communities, um, women, and you see the disparity between wealth 
But see, this is the thing about those statistics. I think that one thing, if, if you have considered statistics or if you studied statistics, we all know that there are outliers. And if we were to remove the outliers, I think it would give us a more comprehensive um, number when it comes to calculating the Gini coefficient. Because, you know, there's, I think, I think there's like nine people, look this up, this change, every year this number gets worse and worse. And then someone throws it out randomly on a podcast or a news uh, broadcast. And you're like, oh my God, it's actually getting worse. And that number is, I think a couple years ago, it was something to the effect of, you know, the 12 richest people in the United States have as much wealth as the bottom 50%. And now I think I heard on uh, Sam Harris's podcast that the nine wealthiest people in the world have as much money or wealth, have as much wealth as the bottom half of the human population. So that's a ratio of nine to three and a half billion. I don't know if you knew this. A billion is a thousand millions. It's 350 million people in the United States. What a bummer. I don't know. You tell me what to do. I guess we got to just bring awareness to these things. What a stupid thing to say. I don't know. I don't know. This is my personality. I vacillate between being insanely energetic, euphoric, positive, engaging, silly, humorous. And then on the other side of that coin, it's very much a tails where I get very morose and dark and preoccupied. And I don't know. I don't know. You throw some adjectives at the mood of this (laughs) worst podcast ever. Oh man. I'm going to bring it back with good vibes. Next time I uh, get one of these rolling on Saturday, I'm sitting down with my uh, friend Clint and he and I, I don't even know what we're going to talk about. He's uh, he just went back to school. He is a community organizer and an all around interesting guy who is actually kind of shredded. Now my boy, like uh, started teaching maybe a year or two after me at my current school and just, you know, average, average build. Now he's just like hitting the gym, bro. Got his diet dialed in. Homeboy is shredded. So shouts out to my boy. And that's probably all the podcast will be about when he and I sit down. I'll just be, I'll just be fawning over the fact that I don't have the biceps that he does. See last podcast. I do a fair amount of talking about how much I want to be shredded and jacked. Um, I don't know. Can I end on a high note? Can that be the high note? The fact that I'm going to be sitting with my buddy, Clint, talking about how fit he is. All things come to go. This mood I'm experiencing, this podcast that if you still listen all the way to the end, comes to go. All things end, both good and bad, including multi-decade long wars. All right, guys. I'll see you in the next one. Goodness, if you made it all the way to the end of this one, eh, good on you. Hopefully, it didn't bum me out too much. Look at another podcast that I've recorded. Maybe, I don't know. Find a funny one. 
enjoy yourself pick your mood back up or don't maybe let yourself drown in this for a little while and then swim your way back out i don't know man don't be too bummed out we're gonna be all right guys keep the faith and hold the line send me an email follow along whatever (laughs) i'll see you guys on the next one peace